All right. Welcome, everybody. Rationalism versus mysticism, episode 18. Um, this is uh, Prophetic Kabbalah, part four. Um, I want to begin, as always, with things that are not necessarily directly related to the topic, but I, I, which I think will tie in eventually. Um, and these things, again, should be used to just drop into your heart, to try to make this into more of a meditation and to try to allow yourself to just enter a different realm of being and thinking than you've been in the rest of the day. Um, so listen to this quote from Ram Das. I think this is beautiful. This is a man who was a Harvard professor and made eventually a trip to India. Um, he said, people say to me, is therapy useful? And my answer always is, if you have Buddha as your therapist, you have a good chance of being liberated. But if you have a therapist who thinks they're a therapist, watch out. What does that mean? I, I just love that he's able to say it so succinctly. You know, I think what he means is if you're the, the person that's giving you therapy intends on giving you therapy as them being the therapist and you being the patient, that's only going to reinforce your identity as a patient. It's going to your it's going to reinforce your separateness from the universe you're going to very often feel even more separate from that which is larger than yourself. If you take on this label of, you know, I'm a patient, I'm a client or whatever it is. Uh, Alan Watts has a beautiful quote. He says, one who goes to seek a psychiatrist should have his head examined, right? Meaning that has a, that's a double-edged sword to it. On the one hand, you could say, okay, he ought to have his head examined because that's what he's there for. He's asking for it. The other thing is the very fact that you think you need help from a psychiatrist is the, is the problem itself. There really is no problem the whole time. The whole time, all you needed to do was just become, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to become a psychiatrist. I'm, I'm really not discouraging people from seeing a psychiatrist, but it has a level of truth to it in the sense that the only thing that's wrong is that you're not able to sit with what is. If Exactly. If you were just fully able to sit with the situation yourself in the situation as it is, there is really no problem. The problem is that you think that there's something wrong. So you'll, you'll, you could look at all these Eastern gurus and every story between the guru and the, te- and the student, what's happening? It's this, the, the guru is basically in the know about this, that there is nothing to tell you. It's like Seinfeld. What's it a show about? It's about nothing. You know, it's like there is nothing to say. But the student's looking for this pearl of wisdom to get it, to be one up on the universe, to, as Alan Watts would say, to ransack the bank, you know, like, and that's the way he wants to act towards life. That life is something towards which you can get something out of. And what the guru is trying to teach him is you are life. You are continuous with that. There's nothing for you to take out of it because you are it. So stop trying to squeeze something out of life. Just be with life and ride the waves of life. So I think that's an interesting perspective. And, and I love that he says here, but if you have a therapist who thinks they're a therapist, watch out. If they're convinced about their identity and they're so stuck and lost in that role and they're not able to kind of drop it just from a spiritual perspective, then they might contribute more and more to your pathology. So one thing that I plan on doing and one thing that I'm very grateful for about my profession is, and I'm, this is not just professionally, this is also interpersonally, I try to make it my business to say things that won't make people feel isolated as an ego. 
So I, I don't like things that even, even compliments. If I think the compliment is going to make a person, you know, more identified and more solidified with their ego in a way that I think might be unhealthy for them, I I'll try not to do it that way. But I don't think there's wrong. There's, there's, I think there's a good way to say a compliment where you don't kind of place the person's value on this action. Yeah, you could, you could compliment their action rather than saying you're so good because you're this way, because then that implies if you weren't that way, you wouldn't be so good. Exactly. So I think the role of a therapist is to help the person feel larger than themselves and say those things with, which open the person up. And that's what a guru basically is. A guru is a person who's able to kind of play the game and do the dance with the student in such a way that the student kind of realizes, yeah, loses his ego and realizes there, there is nothing to learn. Things are perfect as they are right now from one perspective. Okay, now here's a beautiful poem from Jalal al-Din Rumi. What does he say? I died as stone and became a plant. I died as plant and rose to animal. I died as animal and I was man. So already from the beginning here, he's going through this meditative experience. This is Rumi was a Persian mystic. And sometimes when we meditate very intensely, what could happen is we have these images that float through our minds and we almost identify as being that. So when we're really in the thick of that meditation, you, and this has happened to me before, you can have this image of like a flower and then the flower, you watch as that flower decays and then you're the rock and then you watch as the rock kind of just disintegrates and crumbles. And then you're this animal and then you watch as that animal disintegrates and, and decomposes. And there is a way of putting that front, you know, we could have a semantic argument if you want, but some people will call that reincarnation. And some people will say those are your past lives. And some people will say, no, those are just images flipping through your mind. Whatever you want to call it, it's an experience that people have. So this is what Rumi is saying. I died as stone and became a plant. I died as plant and rose to animal. I died as animal and I was man. So he's in this throes of the meditation, experiencing himself flipping through different uh, forms of himself, uh, you know, in these different bodies in a way. Why should I fear? When was I less by dying? Yet once more shall I die as man to soar with angels blessed. But even from angelhood, I must pass on for all is changed except the face of God. All right. So now he's saying, okay, you know what? Sometimes when this happens, when you realize how temporary everything is and you realize how scary it might be to start dying away from things and start decomposing as whatever animal or plant or whatever you were, Although that's scary, there comes a point where you're able to just say, no, there's no fear here. There's nothing to be afraid of. Just because I'm dying doesn't mean I'm any less of an essence or a person. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 100%. And that's, that's what they mean by reincarnation as a better thing and a better thing and a better thing. I think the place that people get that from is experiences through meditation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely an evolutionary uh, process of becoming more and more advanced. Um, so he's saying really there's nothing to fear. 
Because once you experience death in a certain form, and then are reborn, at least in the experience of the meditation, you realize death should not be feared because death always leads to life. And, and wow, Baruch Abba, yeah. Because death always leads to life. Wow, Baruch Abba, if you'd like to join us. Oh, unbelievable. This is rationalism versus mysticism. We're going to be doing some Kabbalistic quotes in a minute. But right now I'm quoting the Persian mystic named Rumi. Jalal al-Din Rumi. So we're, I'll read it from the beginning again. I died as stone and became a plant. I died a plant, as plant and rose to animal. I died as animal and I was man. Why should I fear? When, or when was I less by dying? Yet once more shall I die as man to soar with angels blessed. But even from angelhood. Wow, Baruch Abba. But even from angelhood. Yeah, yeah. Even from angelhood, I must pass on for all is change except the face of God. So what he's we were saying that in a meditation, a person might have these images that flip through his mind, he or she, and experience himself as rock and then plant and then animal or whatever the order is. And you kind of, in the beginning, you might be afraid of this temporality of everything. It might be afraid. You might want to cling to life and be afraid of death. But what happens is sometimes you're able to say, oh, it just happens again. The life part is always succeeding the death part. So there is no fear of death anymore. And this is the biggest thing that people conquer when they go through their spiritual lives. In my, in my humble opinion, when I, what I've seen or what I've read of what, I, what I've heard of people on this journey is the biggest fear that we have. You can name any fear in the world that you have. At the root of it, really, is the fear of death. Fear of death is at the root of all fears that humans have. Truly and really. And if you dig, you'll, you'll realize that. And then once you conquer that fear through meditation or whatever means, you confront the temporality of everything, the temporariness. You no longer feel the need to cling to life. You're able to just be at peace with the process of life and the process of the death. Because it always leads to life. Yeah, please. Amazing. Yeah, I love it. We have spoken about these things already. Many people have saw, or been talking about the near death experience. Oh, yes. And this is such an amazing thing. These people, <laughs> these people when they come back, they seem to no longer fear death. Yes. And the result of their, it's giving me such inspiration. You hear their stories mm -hmm. and how they match up. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Of course. There's a lot of similar, from different cultures, from India, yep. from Japan, and in America. And they're all seeing the same thing. Yep. Feeling the same thing. The light at the end of the tunnel. The very common. And they find the divine. Yep. And that they know it's the divine. They know it's the one creator. It's the true Hashem. Huh. And that he loves everyone. His creatures. And he comes back. And sometimes he comes at a crossing point And they say you can't go past there. Wow. And yes. Is, We're, it's amazing because literally in the Kabbalistic stuff, we said that. Back. Yes. It's not your time, he said. Yes. But they also say in that world, there is no time. Uh -huh. Which is very interesting. Yep, yep. And this is, to me, such kizuk again from this. Unbelievable. It really is and the say, mystical. When I pray to Hashem, I say, thank you, Hashem, for giving me the time to wow. live. Where this is open source. Yep. Where I can hear this. And it's and it's like, it's a whole, I, I listen to these things so much. Yeah. And because it's, it's tremendous. They say and the brain might be releasing DMT when this exactly. happens. Exactly. Yeah. It's a true thing.
unbelievable. Really? It's, it's very inspiring. DMT is dimethyltryptamine. Could be, it's posited to be produced by the pineal gland. According to Rick Strassman, Dr. Rick Strassman, he did uh, experiments on the rat pineal gland and they found DMT in the rat pineal gland. It's never been proven in humans. If David, if you want to volunteer, we'll cut you up one day <laughs> and, and find the DMT. You seem like you have more DMT than me. <laughs> I'm a little jealous. But, uh, but I think it's, it's and they, they show you in this book, the DMT, the spirit molecule, all the research that's been done and all the enzymes that we know about. And it makes perfect sense. We know the building blocks, we know the enzymes, all the stuff is there for DMT to be produced. And they say it might be produced during birth, during death, during dreaming, during near-death experiences. And Definitely. it's an amazing thing. And, you know, Mike Tyson smoked DMT about 59 times before he smoked it. He was a massive, uh, you know, gambler, drug addict, did all these crazy things, lost contact with his, very violent, exactly, lost contact with his family, um, got overweight, stopped boxing, and then he started doing this, fixed his whole life up, got in contact again with his family, ate better, exercised, got off the drugs. Listen, I'm not saying anyone should do it, but I'm saying that it might be the future of psychiatry. Right. It might be really the future. In our lifetimes. I hope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Baruch Hashem. We're getting high on Torah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Baruch Hashem. Um, so, so we'll finish this quote. Now towards the angel world, I wing my way upwards into boundless light. Again, that light. Oh, let my ego cease for non-existence sings as the song of the harp to him shall we return isn't that unbelievable he's saying he's praying his ego is praying to itself and saying please allow yourself to cease allow yourself to let go that's really the epitome if you could give it two words to the advice you can give yourself during the mystical experiences let go and the and aa they add let god let go and let god People always get on my case, but what about this? I said, listen, give yourself an hour to let go. Not every minute has to be to fix the world. You are fixing the world by having this hour long experience or, or days long, months long even of mysticism, because then you could come back into the world a better self. So let my ego cease. And this, I love this line for non-existence sings as the song of the harp to him shall we return. The ayin that we've been speaking about, we've been speaking about yesh me'ayin, the something from the nothing, which is, like you said, it's timeless. It's happening in every moment. This, all the something that you see, the nothingness behind your eyes or whatever you want to call it, that's the ayin. And that's really where, where it's at. And that's what we return to when, we, when our ego ceases. Um, the, the, the Torah, I mean, the Mikubalim will talk about this, the Easterners will talk about this, the nothingness, the emptiness of everything. And to me, it's a perennial philosophy of, of Aldous Huxley. It's the idea that all different traditions are converging on this truth of the oneness of everything, of the emptiness, of the uniform, you know, just silence and quiet. I feel like you're returning also, mm -hmm. returning. Yes. Yes. You know yes. It's very beautiful about that. Yes. This is you return. You know, in Arabic, you say if one passes away, right? We return to God. Aywa, right? yes. I mean, so the expression is, uh, it's coming to, uh, but that's that, 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 that
They talk about a drop in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> they talk about a drop returning to the ocean or a spark returning to its flame. You know, the tree trunk always having been part of the tree. That's the, the, the humor element. We, I always mention humor in these classes because once the ego does discover that it was an illusion the whole time, it realizes God was playing a practical joke on itself. That's the way that some of these traditions put it, especially the Hindus. And they'll, they'll, there's nothing left to do but to laugh because it was the funniest thing in the world that we got lost in ourselves. And then this, it's the hiding and then the seeking the getting lost and then the being found. The being found apparently is one of the funniest experiences because it's like, ah, I really played a trick on myself this time, didn't I? Right? Okay. Uh, next one is from uh, Plato's Crito. Here it is. When Crito asked, in what way shall we bury you, Socrates? Socrates answered, in any way you like. But first you must capture me. Be a good cheer, my dear Crito, and say that you are burying my body only and do with that whatever is usual and what you think best. Right. So we see from all traditions, he's saying, you can bury me if you want, but if you want to bury me, you got to catch me. But really, don't bury the real me, please, because the real me cannot be buried. You can bury my body, but you, you can never really capture the realist me. You want to pin it down. And that's the hilarious part about the mystical experience. It's so often, okay, who is trying to be enlightened? The ego. It's always, we always say, it's like the, pick, trying to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Or when you know, you're in a car, you're in the passenger seat, and yet you realize the person who's driving is not stopping. So you press down as though you have some control over the, the, the brake pedal, but you don't. Or when you're on the airplane and you want the plane to take off and you're like picking up the bottom of your seat to take off, that's the equivalent of the ego trying to overcome itself. And the way to still those waters, those stormy waters, is not to use the ego to calm the ego. It's just to be. It's just to allow the waters to settle. And when those waters settle, just with stillness, just with meditation, it's not the ego trying to do it to itself. And that's the game that the guru plays with the student all the time where it's the guru tells the student, okay, uh, the student says, I want to learn how to be enlightened. And then he says, okay, show me your, your real self. He says, when I look for it, I can't produce it. He says, there you go. That you, you, you can't find it. The thing that you're trying to accomplish already is not a non-issue. It is not there the whole time. And then we talk about once you get to a certain level, the Mekubalim say, when you pray and you remove your ego, or the ego was removed, we should say, because the ego can't remove the ego. The ego was removed. It becomes like God is saying the words. God is praying these words to God. Or when you're performing the mitzvah, it's really God performing the mitzvah. Because already right now, what you think is not God already is God. Whatever you think is the part of you that's, no, that is also God. So you don't even have to try. And it's not by your merit. So there's nothing to be humble about. And there's nothing to be gay about and, and prideful about. It just is. So that's where the mystics are trying to bring us. To get out of this game of I did it or I didn't do it. And then there's the ownership of it. And I feel good about myself. I feel better. Just is. Just be with what is. It's as simple as that. Well, what about all the ethical imperatives? Mm, great. So 
the the hope is uh, the way that Taoism would put it in these Eastern philosophies is that the hope is that the more laissez-faire you are with people very often the, a system emerges of itself where people will want to do what's good and righteous the Torah will tell us that humans have elements to them exactly you have to choose it so I think I think this is where it gets a little dicey because I, I 100% think that exactly allow, allow yes 100% shalom. so what is the answer to this the answer to this is that as a an enlightened person that shalom does not mean that you should go you should be even more involved in doing good it's what the easterners will call a bodhisattva what the torah would call a sadiq betochair but who is really the best person to do it? Not the guy who's lost in his ego. Not the guy who thinks and insists that white must win over black and positive must win over negative or else. Rather, it's the person who has seen past the game. The person who has allowed himself to die and then be reborn and die and then be reborn and therefore does not cling and does not have aversion. And from that place of inner peace and equanimity, he's able to simply be with what is and respond accordingly to evil. So when he responds to evil, he does it level-headedly. And he does it in a way that's not out of an absolute need, but out of this is what there is to be done. Because all that's left now is love. Once you realize there is no self, separate self, all there is is an overflowing love from inside of you. And part of that love is maybe fighting a war against Russia or fighting evil. Fighting evil. Yeah. And I, I, on that note, I heard this amazing story of... Yeah. Uh, there was one of these gurus, and he happened to be a, a mystical sage, uh, a rabbi, but he was like the same level. He, he, wow. Stories told about him. That someone broke into the, the band, just broke into the whole block. Yes. You know the story? Of course. I love it. So, and, and then, and, and then, yeah, say the vase was about to break. Oh, no, I don't know that one. Okay, wait, yeah, yeah, I got to hear it now. Yeah. So then he said to him, Oh, so he was awake. Everyone else was asleep, but this guy was like studying or something, the, the rabbi. So he says to him, Watch out, that's very valuable. <laughs> that's amazing it's, it's very fragile excuse me it's very fragile um and then he said to him look if you're taking it you can take it but yeah yes he, he gave the thief he said he said don't steal it i don't you drop it off ah uh, yes right? exactly i love he that he says he says that he he was willing to let go that, that was the right thing to do yes so the guy ended up like being like, uh, uh almost embarrassed by what he was doing yes amazing so he gave it to him he gave him something else then they woke up and he was like, the only house that wasn't robbed was his house. Wow. So he said to him, was there a thief? And no, he wasn't a thief because he said thank you or something like that, right? <laughs> like that was like the bottom line of the story. But the, the point is that he responded to evil not in this like yes. gung-ho. Exactly. Not in a self-righteous like, way. Yeah, self-righteous way. Like I'm going to yes. in my house, you know, and like, I'm allowed to take him out, right? Then if the class is going to break into your house, technically you could shoot first, right? And it's probably even the law in America. Right? But he didn't exploit that, right? He was just like, okay, this guy's a thief. He's got issues. And like, I don't even need that boss. Like, you know? And he was like, I'm going to work. I'm going to talk to him. So listen to this one. You want to hear the Eastern? Awaken him. Exactly. Like, yes. Away. Beautiful. And that's what that's because what they say. Work, and that could have been a murder. Right? And the Dao De Ching, he says yeah. exactly. He says, what is a bad man, but a good man's teacher? That's exactly it. Sorry, what, sorry, what is a, 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 a good man, but a bad man's teacher? No, sorry, what is a bad man, but a good man's teacher? And what I guess it probably goes both ways, but exactly what you're saying is that, yeah, I, I'm, I don't have to respond based on what I need. 
I could respond based on what this guy's ego needs right. for him to be opened up. So listen to this. This is from a man named Rio Khan. This is this is exactly what I thought of. What I thought you were going to say. Oh, wait, wait, sorry. So with this, it's a very short haiku. The thief left it behind the moon at my window. That's what he said when he walked into his house and realized that everything in his house had been stolen. Oh. So he walks in, he sees the one, he says, oh, the thief left it behind the moon at my window. That's what, that's all I needed. Exactly. So it's so, it's such a different way of living. And it's almost impossible to get this really across to people living in the hustle and bustle of the 21st right, century that? Western society. Even if every scooter is stolen. Exactly. Happened. Terrible feeling. Yeah. Day. My bike was stolen a couple oh, weeks ago. Yeah. Completely. Completely ruined. Yeah. Like, you know, like, it's crazy. You know? Not just once. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. And like, yeah. The moon's still there. Everyone's okay. Exactly. Yeah, and and there's a there's a place you can get to. I think even in this Western world, where you you okay, you get lost maybe a little bit during your day. You you set more and more of an intention to punctuate your day with mindfulness and punctuate your day with the <sighs> nirvana. Literally means the breath out. That's what they say. You know, it's just that that inner peace of knowing that you are kind of like an arm of God. And whatever you're doing, and you you don't even have a choice in the matter. No matter what you do, you're an arm of God. No, but then we still have moral. Yes, so absolutely. We can't say that a shaim are an arm of God. Do you know what I'm saying? I hear what you're saying, but but what does Yeshaya say? So I, I it's in, at this point we reach the point of the ineffability of it because you would never want to say God allow, does evil. No, he allows, he allows for it. So, so it, we reach a place now where we want to say, okay, God is the yin and the yang. God is the tov and the ra. The shake it and the, you can't say shake it. It doesn't make he any sense anymore. Because I can't say ra either. He allows for it to exist. He allows for it to exist. That not, and that makes, that makes the free will that we, you know, yeah. take that as a tenet that makes it all more precious. Yeah, 100%. And I think when you get to the mystical, everything becomes paradoxical. So you reach the point of the question. You say, okay, now I know I'm at the mystical truth. I can't go there. I'm sorry. Hey, yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't embrace that. No, I'm, I, I, we, say, we should oh, never. Say, oh, it's all the same. It's no, all. I don't think we should embrace the rock, but I think we should acknowledge that it's part of existence. Oh, it is. And that it we is. should, we, we can find moments when we're at peace with exactly the way the world is wabi-sabi, which means with its warts and all. And then from that place of peace that we found for an hour, go out and respond to the evil that exists. So I'm saying, if you didn't find that peace for an hour, you're probably going to respond in a worse way 100%. than if you did find peace for an hour. 100%. That's what I want to say. 100, I, I'm on the same page. It's a very tough thing to get across because you never want to say evil with relation to God. But Yeshaya says, No, that's so important. Yeah. Because there were people at that time. Zoroastrianism, yeah. The Sudrach way, of course, mm -hmm, exactly. responding to the world of the exiles who came back. Mm -hmm. They believed, oh, God can't do anything bad. There must be another deity. Exactly. Some, some other thing. I said, no, we have, we have ethical monotheism. One creator. Be a duke. Unbelievable. Unless you go into that whole devil worshiping thing. And yes. The devil. Exactly. Some terrible things came out of that. And this is the absolute yeah. unity of things, 100%. Exactly. So... I want to see how we're going to keep this conversation going because it's going to play out throughout the rest of this I class. Also, so Amazing. That'll be fantastic. Great. This one is from a man named Lama Govinda. He says, there are those who in virtue of concentration and other yogic practices are able to bring the subconscious 
into the realm of discriminative consciousness and thereby to draw upon the unrestricted treasury of subconscious memory, wherein are stored not only the records of our past lives, but the records of the past of the race, the past of humanity, and of all pre-human forms of life, if not of the very consciousness which makes life possible in this universe. Right, so it's saying so far that this is the experience that people are having when they're in the throes of this deep, deep meditation or even a near-death experience where they tap into the collective unconscious, which is this treasure trove of feeling like you know what it's like to be everything, to have experienced other experiences in different forms. One of the things yeah. that the people of the NDE say yes. in their testaments, is that they have a life review. Yes. And in the life review, this is the craziest part, which makes you think a million times before I hope, you know, Shem and Achem, like we have to be so careful how we, how we, because they feel, listen to this, they feel that he hurt someone, they feel that person, how wow. they felt when they hurt them, wow. in their perspective. Unbelievable. From the other person's perspective. So it's like really need that to make a new back. 100%. You always say, there's no judgment. I felt always love. When I re-saw my life, I experienced it from the perspective of the other people. When I was being harsh to someone, I felt the sorrow of that person. Wow. But, and that, and, and but the most incredible thing is that when you're very good to someone and you do something active, uh, you feel it. You feel the goodness and the love. You feel more. the light. You feel the light. And so the ability to have that collective consciousness yeah. allows us to understand the ripple effect of our mm, actions. Yes. How it hurt. Because we don't know the snow. We're so focused on our ego. Exactly. Only this, uh, for me, for me. Wait, the guy who gives you the parking spot, you don't even <laughs> Exactly. He, 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 you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, he really is a hesed. Wow. Which would have taken you like so much longer. You know yes. What I mean? Yes. The, there's that Christmas movie, right? Um, where the guy is the angel that needs to earn his wings. Um, and he sees what the world would have been. I think it's a wonderful world or it's a wonderful life. One of those movies. It's like a very old movie, oh, black yeah, and right. white. And and he in the end he re, he 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 wants to die at a certain point and God shows him what the world would look like without him in it and I have to I fell asleep in the middle so I gotta watch it again but apparently it's a great ending so I gotta we'll stay tuned for that maybe we'll watch it together one day um, okay uh, now how does he finish this off um, oh here look at this he says. The past of humanity of all pre-human forms of life, if not the very consciousness which makes life possible in this universe. You're connecting with consciousness itself. But if through some trick of nature, the gates of an individual subconscious were suddenly to spring open, those somehow you snuck through, the unprepared mind would be overwhelmed and crushed. That's if you're not ready for it. If whatever ego is going through this is not really ready for it. It might, they might like um, Ben Zoma. Exactly. Which we've discussed in previous classes. Oh, amazing. amazing. They might crash land. Right. Therefore the gates of the subconscious are guarded by all initiates and hidden behind the veil of mysteries and symbols. That's right. Why, why it's always, you know, uh, uh, you could only read Ma'asemet Kava uh, to, you could only learn it if you Exactly. And it's always guarded. These are guarded secrets. So God knows I can't reveal anything because I don't know enough. So that's why we're permitting me to speak <laughs> for the rest of the time here. Um, okay, so now we're officially going to start talking about uh, Abulafian Kabbalah again. And uh, 
let's say again. Nabi Abraham Abu Lafia. Exactly. So first I want to uh, leave off because we left off last time. We were rushing at the end of last class. So we'll just continue from there. There was a book called Shushana Sodot by Moshe of Kiev. Um, and he has a description of Abu Lafian prophecy. And he, he said, great is the power of the prophets who make the form resemble the former. That the prophets are able to, to help you realize that all of this form is really the former with capital F is really God. Somehow they, the prophets are able to help you real, uh, to make you realize that. Rabbi Natan said, the complete secret of prophecy to a prophet, suddenly he sees the form of his self standing before him and he forgets his own self and ignores it. And that form speaks with him and tells him the future. So the image that a person might have is of their future self or their most self-actualized self meeting them and saying, David, Albert, whoever it is, saying, this is a piece of wisdom that you need to know. This is something that you need to have in your mind. Rabbi um, Abraham ibn Ezra said, the one who hears at the time of prophecy is a human being, and the one who speaks is a human being. Right? So it comes in the form of a human very often. Now listen to these two quotes from, uh, from the book from Moshe of Kiev. One day I was sitting and writing down a Kabbalistic secret when suddenly I saw the form of myself standing before me and my own self disappeared from me and I was forced and compelled to cease writing. So there's a certain thing of like trying to break through and not quite getting it, not quite being able to either reveal the secret that he was writing down or capture that thing. We know the Midrash about Yaakov Avinu, he wanted to tell, like it says in the Torah, Et asher right? And then, it, it, exactly, he wasn't able to say it. And he ends up saying, He sees a little glimpse of what the Hachamim says, Shimshon, but it's something that happens with the mystical or the near death, or is that we feel like we're, we want to put it into words, or it's something stolen from us. They say people who have been enlightened say they feel like they've awoken from a dream. Um, and they, it's almost like they, they can't even remember what they wanted to say to help you understand what it was like. And it's like this thing's always elusive, always one step away. And final quote from Moshev Kiev. Likewise, while we were, oh, somebody coming. Uh, wow. Baruch <laughs> Nice to meet you. Baruch Hashem. Fadal. Yeah, join us. No, no, yeah. no, 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 no. He, oh, yeah, anybody, yeah, exactly. Thank you, 100%. As they said, so he says, You're likewise, while we were composing this book and adding the vowel points to the tetragrammaton, the Yodke Bavke, strange objects appeared before our eyes like the image of red fire at sunset until we were confused and stopped. And this happened to us several times while we were writing. So there's something that you feel as you're approaching this divine realm, something begins to happen that's a little bit maybe unsettling and a little bit scary and overwhelming. And you feel compelled to stop because you feel maybe like Nadav and Avihu might have felt when they were bringing the Esh Zara, we're entering a realm where unless we're so devoid of ego, we're really not welcome or not going to be able to enter there. And I think it's almost like the warning signs here. So now let's delve really into the Kabbalah of Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia. You're right. You're just in time. <laughs> it's perfect timing. Um, 
So he says that the, the, the prophetic state entails the mystic confronting his own self, like we mentioned, in his most highly self-actualized form. So like they say, you, you know, the, the, the famous rabbinic story, oh, when you get up to Shamayim, they're going to take you into a room and you're going to see walls lined with books and books and books and books. And books. You say, Hashem, what is this? He says, these are all the books you could have written if you self-actualized. This is the person you could have been if you would have reached your fullest potential. So people talk about meeting that self, meeting that most self-actualized self. And then the paradox is, but at the same time, you're perfect exactly the way you are. And it's both and it's neither at the same time. Right? And this, is, uh, this self-actualized self is, is where all potentialities have been fulfilled. It's that perfect. And the goal of the mystic is to transform himself into that person. To go from being pre-prophetic to prophetic. And Abiyah Abraham Abulafia has all these different techniques talking about how to achieve this level of the prophetic. Um, he felt that Jewish philosophers very often were rationally explaining away Judaism. They were explaining Judaism out of existence. And therefore he criticized the contemporary rabbinate of his time for being way too concerned with just the fame, fortune, power, sound familiar. And uh, you know, to, to our days, maybe a husband shalom. But but he says uh, exactly. He wrote a commentary on the God. Yes, he, he was a huge fan of Hanabam. We were talking about that last time. And he had a mystic. Yeah. Homo mystic. And he was and yeah. Is, yeah. Is that he was very controversial as well? Of course. Now he celebrated because the Hidas gave him that shit. Uh, <laughs> beforehand, you know, there was a long. I didn't know. Time that he was considered wow. even in certain circles. Wow. Taboo. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. I mean, he was, he, but he really, it's amazing how his mysticism was not the Ari. It was not Lurianic. Exactly. It was pre Lurianic mysticism. Yeah, he had, he had very interesting practices. Yes. And in him, in him, we have the marriage of the rationalistic Karambam with the, the Kabbalistic. And people think of these as two opposite poles. We have the meeting of them in this amazing figure of Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia. Some tells us that even Haram Bam had his own mysticism. Yes. In which book? Homo Mysticus, exactly. The Guide to the Guide. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I got to read it. Yeah, it's amazing. That's amazing. No, it's so, it's so powerful when you start to realize this because he's a person that is, that is able to hold different things in his head. I think that's the way we need to be if we want to understand the mystical a little bit is holding paradox and, and being okay with paradox in your mind. Um, he saw a lot of contemporary Jews as overly materialistic, self-indulgent, seduced by vacuous ideas. Um, and, and a lot of them needed to hear a new way of serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Um, so what he did was he found a way to meditate on the divine name, on the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in very specific, unique ways. And he had all these traditions of, wow, Baruch Abayim, unbelievable. Let's go, Mike, good to see you. Wow. <laughs> So we have no problem. We have all these different ways of, of worshiping God and of, of meditating on God's name. And he had these traditions of God's name uh, that would lead to prophecy. We know that she talks about how did uh, Moshe kill this one with the name of God, the 72 letter one. Or how did the people enter into the Pardes? They use the divine name. So we have a tradition within Judaism that there's something about the, the names of God that could be used as a very potent meditative technique. Um, the Hebrew letter was seen as pregnant with certain powers and different truths within it, that the Hebrew language had a certain way 
of opening us to transcending the ego. Uh, the 22 letters of the alphabet were seen as deriving from the letters of the Tetragrammaton of Yod Kevavke somehow. Um, and of course, traditionally, Yod Kevavke was only recited by who? The Kohen Gadol, right? Exactly. And on Yom Kippur only. Um, but Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia saw the pronunciation of God's name in its real way as a religious commandment. Not that you weren't allowed to say it, but that it was a mitzvah to say it. I don't know which mitzvah, but yeah. So Please, hundred percent. I would love to hear. Yeah. Temple period, he said it mm. because at the yes. first temple period, we know it was a fixed name, the Shemiyahu, the Shayah. Yes. We have the names of the Yehoshua. Right? thank you. Ariel was so clear. My Lord, right? Mm. We use this name, and there's nothing wrong with it. Later on, in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, the word Mokhev mm. appears. Mokhev Shem. Wow. And Mokhev was already understood to mean. Not like an engravement and a desecration, but uh, it the utterance of the name. Wow. And hence came the practice not to say the name anymore. So in Second Temple period, mm -hmm. we have a, a, we still affix the names because they're traditional names. But if you notice, it became Yirmiya. Ah, uh, makes sense. We don't want to say God's name. Mm. Um, and we don't affix it to the name. And then furthermore, it only was held on in the priestly circles, because the priests were very conservative, they wouldn't change anything, and so therefore we have in the in not only the Kohen Gadol, but we have in the Mishnah Sofa, wow. that when they say the Beracha B'Tokvanim, they would say Shem Hashem in the Beit Hamikdash, they would say God's name, uh, yeah. they would pronounce it, yeah. the Mavleaim, uh, the Mavleaim, they would pronounce it a little uh, weird, a little so weird. that people wouldn't, notice. yeah. One uh, extract of this that we still have in our service. And the Hosha'anot, you know the Hosha'anot? So we have Ani, Wahu, Hosha'ana. Yeah. If you look in the manuscript, Anna Adonai, Hosha'ana. And you have the word is Ani, Wahu. Me and him, Ani, Behu, what is this? This is not this. This is Anna Adonai. Wow. Hosha'an's name. Wow. Hosha'ana. Wow. And we take that from the temple because in the temple, we continue to pronounce it. Yeah. This last thing I said is not mine. I mean, I thought about it. Unbelievable. Yeah. Amazing. I love that. Yeah. That's fantastic. And I think it's a terrible thing to say because like oh, no, it's beautiful. Against the ego. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. But, but it's erratic. Yeah. I'm trying to tell you this is not documented. This is conjecture. So I, I don't get in trouble. No, no, not okay, don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Don't worry. It's on the recording, but other than that, no, no. I'll delete it for you. <laughs> so we have this idea that clearly the Hebrew language has some unbelievable potential to it to, to unlock the human consciousness. I think that's kind of the key here. Um, the Torah is even seen as one long name of God from the Bet of Bereshit to the Lamed of Israel. The whole thing was seen as one long name. That's even one tradition that they had. The text of the Torah was seen as like this rendezvous point with God. And the Torah, the study of the Torah doesn't only mean that it's okay studying what it means literally, but it's also supposed to be a meditative mystical experience when you read the words of the Torah in a certain way. Um, and, and to me, that's a beautiful thing because we could learn things on one level, like that's the pardes idea. And then another level, it could unlock you meditatively. Um, you could repeat the names of God many times to create a certain level of focus in your mind to prepare you for prayer. 
Um, and what they would do is they would block out all of their sensory distractions. And this would be in order to stimulate that intellectual faculty of man. And by blocking everything out, and, and he was a fan of seclusionism, was it the Abraham Abulafia? You were able to reach levels that you wouldn't be able to really reach otherwise. He had these different mantras, but don't think of the mantras necessarily as simple mantras like they have in other Eastern religions. These are really much more complex. And with the vowels and the letters and the breathing and hand movements all happening at once, it was a very complex thing. Yeah. It's very similar mm. to the dhikr. Are you familiar with the Sufi dhikr and the Sawah? I, I think I've heard of it. This is incredible. Yeah, this I would love to hear it. Rabbi Lavatan, of blessed memory, mm. wrote his dissertation on Nabi Abraham. Ben Harambam. Yeah. Who himself was a very, well, the whole point. A.B. got me his, uh, his manuscript. Yeah, A.B. made me. One day he's not but he really is. Wow. Yeah. And he did dhikr. And he did all these things. And he brought back a lot of Islamic things. Wow. And he even wanted to throw him out of the community. That's oh that point. And the serpent, the letters of serpent. But what's incredible about this is that they did all these chantings. And they would chant the 99 names. And they do a lot of chantings that were also common. Wow. So maybe it's maybe just to put it out there. Yeah. Yes, this is a way to reconnect. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the spiritual activity itself. Yes. That brings one to that high. Hundred percent. That if you're focusing on God and using a different language, maybe it will look just as well. Exactly. I think. I yeah. I don't think. It, I don't think it's necessarily unique to Hebrew. I right. agree with you. Hundred percent. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Up the mountain. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I agree. And this is just one. Right, for and sure, work, and it works Otherwise, for a lot of people, exactly. But yeah. clearly, they were borrowing from other, whether consciously or not. Yes, there were other mystical movements that were doing these types of things, for sure. And so, I think that that also motivated, and was, yeah, we watched them. Wow, how they do this, the chanting, it's amazing, and the, maqam, and the dancing, the Sufi mystics dancing, yeah, it's amazing. So, it's so interesting. I mean, it, it really. The fact that mysticism is very much a con it's everything is converging on each other, a lot of these traditions, and they're so similar. It's like convergent evolution, the wing of a bat and the wing of a fly. They both came to the same conclusion from different evolutionary starting yeah, points. Yeah, right? exactly. It's an unbelievable way of thinking about it. Um, so there's different combinations, permutations. Uh, you would have spiritual preparation, physical preparation for these experiences. You would have new, clean, white clothes, wearing your talit, wearing your tefillin. You could picture it yourself. One beautiful meditation I love to do is you say to yourself, picture your favorite place, your most calm, serene place on the planet, in, made up or real or whatever. Put yourself there. Sit there and dwell there in that. And you could you picture whoever you want to be with you there. You could be dressed however you want, whatever smells. And it's, it's such an unbelievable place in your mind it's almost like you have your own personal spa inside your mind that's what i read once in a book that it's so powerful and no matter where you are you have this superpower it's especially and you should pick a special place to go to to do this meditation you light a candle at night maybe some incense um and like we mentioned they had very specific ways of pronouncing different letters with the vowels head movements hand movements breathing techniques based on the vowels you would breathe in a certain way um, the 72 letter name of God from Exodus 14 was very popular. Um, and we know the Vulcan greeting from Star Trek actually comes from the Birkat Kohanim thing. And I think this is one of the, the signs that they would do during the meditation. I wish I knew more to tell you about that. But what we do know is that melody, pitch, intonations like music 
uh, of pleasant melodies, and depending on the vowels, they would have different melodic tunes. Yeah. Yeah. Where's that from? That's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, from the Shna. Yes. One pronounces God's name. Yeah. Yeah. Here we have it. Very serious. Very serious. But he's not the first one, because in the time of the destruction of the temple, afterwards, people continued to the practice of saying, Really? Well, one of the people who was one of the martyrs, the one who died at the same time, yeah, Ben Tradion, right? Yes, Tradion. How do you say it? I thought it was Tradion, but it's probably yeah. different ways. Yeah, so uh, it says, This we used to teach Torah during the period of persecution. Any hidden, even the grabbing like the one we're in now, would have been capital punishment. Because discussing, we thought we were providing them to Rome. <laughs> so uh, he was sentenced to death. Wow. And uh, and and there's a famous story that he burned in the Torah. Yeah. And he and says, he yeah. Says, and the, uh, the executioner asked him, what do you see? He says, the Torah is burning, but the letters are flying up. Right? He had a mystical experience. Yeah. And, uh, um, but, but this is one of the things that he said. And the Talmud there goes out of its way to say, and why was his wife also and also captured and also enslaved? Because they should have stopped him. Wow. And he didn't. They stopped him from pronouncing God's name. Or it's not clear. Maybe you could read that. They should have stopped him from, uh, from endangering himself, right? Yeah. Because it was suicidal almost at this point. So his friends told him, you have your name there. They're gonna, it's only a matter of time that the KGB gets you. Wow. Yeah, it's so powerful. So there's something yeah. very powerful about the name of God in a way. You know, oh, and like Christian scriptures all over. Yeah. Right. And one of the things was they would use for magic. Uh, these would receive. Yes. Yes. So rabbis were adamant his name was that. Hmm. That was one of the yeah. things that they had. Because the same Mishnah says, Describing partners for God. And this was how they saw, I think, as Baha'i Egypt. I think that's what he said. Well, yep. To be part of or his movement, the followers, to be, at least in the eyes of the rabbis, mm. for the most part, a practicer, a practitioner of magic, but magical. Sure. And that would move them away from the. Out of the pale of Judaism. Judaism. And that's, I think, how Abu Afia, Rabbi Abu Afia, was seen. Was seen, oh my goodness. Contemporaries who resented his, yes. his things because they were like, oh, it's magic. Uh, yeah, really for him it was a meditative technique to really connect with God, hundred percent. I think that's the point: is it's not to manipulate things for your ego's gains. It's that the person who can get to this level is only one that doesn't is not ego driven. That's the beauty of it, and that's the litmus test: is if you have an ego, you won't be able to do it anyway. And then, okay, if you talk about some things that might happen, that's not. It's not going to be ego driven. It's just going to be really as you're a vessel for Hashem. That's the hope, right? Um, so there were certain, maybe some melodies that they would sing as, you can imagine how beautiful it must have sounded as they would pronounce these things. Um, they did a lot of atbash, which is like connecting the aleph with the taf, the bet to the sheen. And I've seen even uh, Ibn Ezra says one of the names of God uh, and, and he gives an atbash and you have to decode the atbash to get to the, the name of God about it, when he when it talks about yeah, he says, who kore le'atzmo? Um, right, and that's basically, and that's exactly, exactly. Exactly. Right. amazing. One, one thing I want to say about that yeah. is that uh, Rambam, for what it's worth, the guide, I believe it's 161, 
in book 151, he says emphatically, there's no 72 letter names. There's only the four letter names. That's it. Wow. And the seven names you can't erase, it's only in Torah. But there's 72. Anambam is very. Yeah, that's it. Adam. All these other names, hmm. he didn't. He, he didn't he was, he was subscribe to. Well, it makes sense because you don't want to, because it could get out of hand. I probably did. (laughs) And a lot of times, for sure. All right. So part of this, this meditative thing was unbelievable. What did they do? It was three steps to it. And they would start off writing this stuff. And now the writing was itself a meditation. And then they would start to recite it. And then they would start to contemplate. So it would move from being written to speaking to meditating. It's like almost had on bombs levels of, uh, you know, yeah, you start with the korbanot, you're moving towards tefillah, and then meditation is the highest level. It's that kind of feel to it. Uh, listen to this quote, amazing quote from Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia, I think. Your entire body will begin to tremble, and your limbs will be seized with shuddering. You will experience the terror of God, and you will be in, enveloped in, by awe of God. You will rejoice and have great pleasure. You will experience ecstasy and trembling ecstasy for the soul and trembling for the body this is like a rider who races a horse the rider rejoices while the horse trembles under him i love that imagery because there's something so overwhelming to the ego to the body while this experience is happening you feel maybe the need to own all the suffering to own all the evil because now you realize okay what okay if i am the yin and the yang then i'm the yang, i'm the yin i'm the negative pole of things too um, uh, you know, so, and you, you kind of feel into this overwhelming, shuddering experience. But as the 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 body is trembling, he's saying, you kind of take a step back and you realize I'm really the rider on top. I'm really the soul. I'm really whatever this ineffable part of me. That's the real me. That awareness, that consciousness. Um, and he gives this admonition, like you mentioned about the near death experience. Do not choose death over life as a result of this bliss. You might say, I just want to merge back with you, God. I don't want to take up this home anymore in this physical body. He says, instead, cultivate the meditative skills and and hone them until you become an expert, quote, in choosing life. And then the mystic still has a mission to fulfill. Uh, you know, within his lifetime, and that's what they call in the East, the Bodhisattva, what we, what we call a Sadiq Betochair. It's a person who says, I had this mystical experience, I jumped out, but I'm not going to live there anymore. I'm not going to dwell in the everything. I'm going to come back to my ego to help fix the world. And I'm going to try to use my, my body and all this. And you, it's a beautiful prayer you could say in the morning. You say, you know, when, you, when you're saying Modani, you could think, Hashem, please use my lips for good today. Use my limbs to accomplish your tasks. Use my legs to go on the path that you choose for me. All these different things. Um, The soul is in the process of separating from the body at this time. And he says here, in your mind, you will choose death rather than life. That's what you think you're going to choose. For death only involves the body. And as a result, the soul lives forever. At a certain point, you become okay with dying. You have to give into that to have that fully merging experience with God. Says it'll be You have to fully be okay with your ego dying. But then you realize the soul is really what's living forever, and it's okay to die. It's okay to die. Not that you should choose that death. But once you become okay with it, you allow things to calm down a little bit, 
Thank you for coming. Really, no, we're we're, we're gonna finish off soon. Thank you. Thank you. No, 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 it was fantastic. Really, we should be zochef for many more. I love you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. So uh, we have a little bit left to get to, but we're we're gonna we'll finish up because this is the last. This might be the last class. We'll see. But next, next week I'm not gonna be here. So. Where we'll finish up now. Only a handful of Abulafian texts have ever been published. It's amazing. Many remain only in manuscript form. There were two stages of prophetic Kabbalah. Sefirot was one type, which we said he doesn't deal with. And then there's the names of God, which is the higher level. The Sefirot, also known as plants. And by the way, if you remember from the story of Arba'anik Nesuba Pardes, the four people in, the, in paradise, in the orchard. What does it say about Ahir, about Elisha ibn Abuyah? He sets it. Uh, he uh, I forgot how it says the shoots. He cut down the shootlings, the little plants, and it's that. And the sefirot are known as plants because it's a reference to Ahir cutting them down and causing disunity in the sefirot. That's what they're accusing Ahir of doing. Listen to this quote: Through the enhancement of their merit, they approach the highest distinction to a point where the speech they hear within themselves is linked with the fountain from which all speech derives. These are the true prophets in justice and in righteousness. Thus, the mastery of the tense of Virot precedes the additional knowledge of the names of God, but not vice versa. The higher level is the names of God, and then the highest level you're really getting to is where even your thoughts themselves, even the inner voice within yourself, you realize that's God too. And there's nothing left but God. And everything that is is deriving from the fountain of God. It's one thing for me to say that right now. I'm not in the midst of a mystical experience right now. Maybe on one level I am, like we all are. But when you're in the mystical experience, you really feel that way, that there is nothing outside of God, and you are all of that. Even your thoughts, even your feelings, even the next words coming out of your mouth, even the the movement of your lips, it's all God. He says this now. Listen to this quote. Make yourself ready to meet your God, O Israel. Get ready to turn your heart to God alone, cleanse your body, and choose a special place where none will hear you, and remain in isolation with yourself. Sit in one place in a room or in the attic, but do not disclose your secret to anybody. If you can do this in the daytime in your own home, do even if only a little bit. But it is best to do it at night. Be careful to withdraw your thoughts from all the vanities of the world when you are preparing yourself to speak to your creator, and you want him to reveal to you his mighty deeds. Right, so there's really so much beautiful preparation that we were like we were mentioning, um, and and find a way to be in a place physically and mentally, like they say, set and setting, where you can speak with God, um, and and He can reveal to you His deeds, which is an amazing thing, um, because the humility and the gedulah and the greatness come forth in the same paradoxical breath, and when you're looking at existence, you see. God's amazing grandeur in every blade of grass. And you also see his tremendous humility in the fact that he's hiding it all the time. Every grain of sand carries God in it, and yet it's hidden. And that's real humility. Um, he says, combine the letters until your heart feels warm. Understand many new subjects you haven't known through traditional reason. Get ready to envision God and his supreme angels. Envision them as though you are a messenger among them, ready to hear your mission. Like he says in Yeshaya. I'm ready for my mission, God. Highly creative and open state of consciousness. This state of consciousness is extremely open and creative. You will have uh, dropped the writing utensil due to the intensity of the information we said he was started off writing. You're definitely going to have dropped it by now because it's so intense. Um, 
He says, temporarily allow yourself to choose death over life. Allow yourself to die. Let go. The scariest thing, like we said, the biggest fear we all have, allow yourself to do it because you'll discover with that death that it will only lead towards life. And that's all there ever really is after death. Um, and this death is for the body alone. Serve God with the life of body and soul. Cover your face and be afraid to gaze at God, like Moshe Rabbeinu, right? He covered his face. Um, then return to your bodily needs. Leave that place. Eat and drink a little. Inhale fragrant odors. Restore your spirit and be happy with your lot. All right, so once you're done with the meditation, go back and nourish your body uh, physically with food and drink and even with besamim. God has bestowed his knowledge and love upon you. Rejoice in that fact that you've had this experience, but then return to life a little bit um, and become adept at choosing this kind of life, this type of life, which is so unique, which is a mystical spiritual life. Because we said this world is the escape. That world is the truer world. Repeat it several times. Become successful in it. Strengthen yourself, then choose another path even higher than this. So drive yourself to keep meditating and keep having these unbelievable experiences. Last few points and we're finished. The seventh and highest path, he says, and attaining it, one comprehends the message that descends from the active intellect to the power of speech. Somehow there's an ability to have this intellectual thing come down, maybe in the form of words, cannot be given the details of this without the knowledge of the 42 and 72 letter names of God. That's what he says. So he says, I want to give it all off to you. I want to give it to you, but it's, it's almost like I can't really tell you because you don't know the names of God. Um, and he says this thing called seruf. Seruf is letter combination compared to many mystical, musical instruments, sorry, in harmony that activate the heart and the spleen, which is the center of the emotion, really, according to them. Um, but they had the, the, the way of combining different letters was compared to a beautiful symphony where you have the guitarist and then the bassist and then the guy on the drums and then the guy playing the piano. Each of them combines to make the symphony even more beautiful. And in the mystical experience, you can experience every blade of grass and every grain of sand contributing to that unbelievable symphony. Um, and finally, these vibrations can cause the heart to rejoice and to know God and experience delight. And he quotes the following pasuk. This will end with this. When it is perfect, it restores the soul. And that's the litmus test for you. And when you walk out of that meditation, do you feel nourished? Do you feel spiritually rejuvenated? Right? It's like it says in Yeshaya. So this is what we're hoping for. We're hoping that as we meditate more and more, and as we sit more and more, and as we cultivate this practice, we'll be able to really connect more and more with God and allow God to use our bodies for the good, to use our lips to speak his words, to use our hands to do his actions. And my, my blessing to all of you is that, you know, carry this with you, whatever you're doing, as mundane as it might seem, try to imagine that this is a dance that you're doing with God. Any questions or comments? Drop the mic. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Guys, what a pleasure as always.
So next week we're off. I'll let you know, maybe even after the fellowship's over, maybe we'll do a couple of concluding classes if you guys want. Thank you everybody for joining this unbelievable journey. It's been a real privilege and a pleasure for me. Baruch Amen.